You said, where did I get my beliefs? Where do my values come from? Did I choose them or did they choose me? Now let's talk a little bit about this because this is actually something that we as a whole, especially in the Jewish community, really need to think about. This is Hebrew Hits presented by JTribeRadio.com. I'm your host, Malia, and I sit down with people who live by the motto, it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference. Welcome to Hebrew Hits. I'm your host, Malia, and this is the 45th episode. Before I introduce our guests, I'd like to kindly ask you, you are watching right now on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. Yep, you see it says subscribe in red. Go hit that subscribe button, like this episode, share this episode, comment, engage in this episode because then more people will see it, more people will get value from it. Please go follow Hebrew Hits on Instagram at Hebrew underscore hits. And please go subscribe on all our streaming apps are available everywhere, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, everywhere. Who said girls don't know about the Super Bowl? I'm a girl and I'm here to tell you that I know who's playing in the Super Bowl. It's the Chiefs and the Buccaneers. Well, get ready because I am going to be at a Super Bowl party. And guess what I'm going to be eating at that Super Bowl party? It is going to be T-Bone Jerky. Check it out. I have amazing jerky for you and I have a code. If you use code HEBREWHITS, you will get 15% off of your next order of a Super Bowl platter. There's a size small, there's a size large. There's also different packaging. You could order this for $15. Not only do we give platters for the Super Bowl, we also give amazing Shabbos platters, T-Bone Jerky, check it out. We've got Teriyaki, Texas Town, which is my favorite one of the three, Honey, Ch honey Chipotle, Honey, Honey Chipotle, Honey Chipotle. Okay, we've got Honey Chipotle in the house. Well, I'm so excited because if you right now, okay, by tomorrow, 12 p.m., Friday afternoon, make sure to order with the code HEBREWHITS15. You will get 15% off your Super Bowl platters. And guess what? You know what they say when they finish the Super Bowl? You know what the winning team says? They say, we're headed to T-Bone Jerky. Right now, I'm so excited to introduce Jonas and Goldson, all the way from St. Louis. We're here over Zoom. He is my 45th guest on Hebrew Hits. He is a religious fundamentalist, keynote speaker, TEDx speaker, and he is the hitchhiking rabbi. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, Maya. I'm so excited you're here with me. I know like you do speeches all day. How does podcasting compare to actual, like to, to speeches? I'm actually curious to know that. Well, you know, the, the speaking industry has taken a hit during COVID and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the whole conference industry has shut down. Some speakers have managed to go to, to, um, to virtual and I've done a few of those. Um, there, there's, a, there's a tremendous um, thrill, really, of speaking to a, a crowd of people. There's an energy mm -hmm. in the room. Um, if I have a message that I believe that I'm passionate about and that I believe they're going to respond to, which usually is the case, um, then that sense of a lot of people coming together for common purpose, uh, wanting to find value, wanting to improve, wanting to make their lives and the lives of others better. It's, it's really, uh, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, 
podcast is different because it's more intimate. Uh, mm -hmm. Fortunately, with the technology, we can feel like we're we're sitting across the table, even though we're on other side, opposite sides of, of the country. <laughs> uh, it's a little more relaxed. There's not so much pressure, especially when we're recording. If I don't like the way things turn out, I can uh, <laughs> suppress the recording <laughs> or exactly. edit out what we don't like. Well, they're different. They're different ways, but you know, the 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 the, the issue really is to, to communicate, um, to learn about each other, to learn new things, new ways of looking at the world. And, and we have so many opportunities to do that. People complain about Zoom fatigue. Um, imagine what it would be like for us during COVID if we didn't have Zoom. Exactly. Really we wouldn't be able to communicate with anybody, honestly. Yeah. Now, I want to talk to you about something you said in your TEDx speech at the Colorado Springs. You said, where did I get my beliefs? Where do my values come from? Did I choose them or did they choose me? Now let's talk a little bit about this because this is actually something that we as a whole, especially in the Jewish community, really need to think about because we're all born into this belief system, whereas you were born Jewish, but you're a Baal Shuba. So I'm just so curious to just talk to you about this because I was born into this belief. Now, how am I supposed to think something differently? Obviously, it was chosen to me. You know, I didn't choose this type of belief. Yeah, and this is a message that it's, you're right, that um, Jews should think about it, religious Jews should think about it, but really everybody should think about it because we absorb our beliefs from our parents, from our teachers, from our peers, from the news media, from the entertainment industry. And, and it's even more deep-rooted than that. Um, you know, Jonathan Haidt talks about this, that people who are more, um, they have more openness as a natural trait. They tend to be liberal-minded. People who are orderly tend to be more conservative-minded. Mm -hmm. So our temperaments and our environments have a tremendous effect on what we believe and how we see the world. And that's okay as long as we're willing to consider other points of view and try to understand a more objective way of, of looking at issues, coming at things from both sides. And so at my TED Talk, I, I did challenge my audience to ask themselves, where did my beliefs come from? Did I reason my way to them? Or did I simply in, absorb them from my environment? Uh, you know, in, Jew, in the Jewish prayer, the standing prayer, the Amida, and the Shemona Esrei, we start off by addressing our God and the God of our fathers. And it's set up that way for a very specific reason, because we inherited from our ancestors a belief system, and that connects us with the past. That's the source of our knowledge. But at the same time, it's not enough. We have to make our relationship with God our God. We have to understand on our own. It's not enough to say, well, this is what I learned. This is what I'm going to do. That's a foundation. But now I have to work my way to it on my own to really interpret what does it mean? What's it all about? How is it relevant to my life? How is it relevant to the world around me? And it's, it's, there are so many different forms of tension in our lives and paradox in our lives. We're individuals that are part of society. We're spiritual beings trapped in a physical body. We, we have to have long-term goals, but short-term needs. And all of these 
contradictions are are struggling with each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. Our problem is when we try to eliminate that tension because then we're denying who we are. Recognizing that this is our nature and working to manage that tension, that's the human condition. I'm just like, I'm still like, just wanna know how, if we're born into the system, let's talk about Judaism because I'm a Jew. We're told these are our beliefs. Now, you're telling me, not you, but I'm born into this, right? And so many other people, this is what I believe. Why? Because I'm told to believe it. So I know you're saying in Shemona Esther, we say, but our God and our God of our forefathers. But if we were born into a different culture or a different religion, then maybe we wouldn't, we probably wouldn't think that way. So they believe that their belief is true. And then we believe that this is what we believe. So the whole thing is just confusing, no? Well, sure. And you know, this, this is a, a very uncomfortable conversation to have because if somebody's right, that means everybody else is wrong. Mm-hmm. And we don't, especially in our egalitarian world, we don't like to, we don't like to say, well, you know, um, it's not politically correct. It's not polite to tell people they're wrong. And this is why I, I don't engage in interfaith debate. From time mm-hmm. to time, I'll, I'll be talking to Christians and, and, or Christian programs. And, and some people will, somebody will ask me, now, why don't Jews believe in Jesus? Right. And I don't want to discuss that. I don't want to convince them they're wrong. Uh, yeah, a person who is a good Christian is a good person. A person who is a good Muslim is a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, there are basic fundamental rules for what it means to be a good person. You don't murder. You don't steal. Uh, you, right. you, you conduct yourself with a certain amount of dignity and integrity. That's mm-hmm. a good person. And we are all creations of God. We are all created in his image. And so to start arguing with each other is just gonna tear us apart. But for me, I need to know why I believe what I do. And Mm -hmm. you say you were born into this belief system. I wasn't. I was raised in a secular home with no religious training or teaching or code or belief whatsoever. And I came to this after I finished college, after I traveled around the world, I was 24 years old, and I needed to be convinced. Don't tell me it's tradition. Don't tell me it's heritage. Don't tell me it's beautiful. Don't tell me I'm going to have a happy, fulfilling life. Convince me it's real. And if you do, you got me. And if you don't, I'm out of here. And so when I taught high school for 23 years, I was teaching teenagers who were raised in a religious community and religious homes but my approach was always to challenge them, to be provocative, to say things that I knew would go against what they understood or what they'd been taught, Uh to force them to think and to actually put themselves in the position of someone who is coming at this from scratch, because that's how we strengthen our belief. Mm. It's not not the foundation, the foundation is we inherited it. Right. But we can get there without that foundation. And if we have that foundation, we can strengthen it. Because if I'm only doing what my parents told me, at, you know, there's, I heard a terribly tragic story. Um, 
to my mind, is tragic of a, of a young woman who grew up in rural, I think it was Kansas or someplace, you know, very, very rural, in a very insulated Christian community. Mm-hmm. And she never thought that there was any other way of looking at the world than what she absorbed in her Christian community. And she went away to college and all of a sudden she discovered that her contemporaries and her teachers were using a word that she never heard before, evolution. Wow. She'd never heard, she never heard of evolution. Never heard it. It was never taught to her. And not only did they, did they all know what it was, and she didn't, they all believed it. And it contradicted everything she believed. And her conclusion was that her community had hidden this from her because they weren't honest, because they didn't want to deal with it. And she ended up dropping her entire Christian faith. It would have been yeah. so easy. It's one of the first, when I teach Jewish history, I go back to, to creation. And in the first unit, I talked about evolution. How do you reconcile evolution with creationism? There are ways to do it. It's not that difficult. It's not that complicated. It's not that uncomfortable. But if you ignore it, then you have this big looming question that is going to eat away. And and so to, to to ask those questions that we might be afraid of, that we're, maybe there's no answer, maybe we won't like the answer. No, let's talk about it. Let's see that we can address it. Let's understand more deeply why our belief fits in with the modern world, with science, with society. We don't have to be afraid of that because if we are, we're on very thin ice. So not only come like, you know, in the, with the modern world, how our religion fits in with the modern world, but in general, what, what would you say to your students? They grew up religious. They grew up in a from house and you really searched and seeked out the truth. So you really understand and you, you understand why you believe what you believe. What would you tell those students that, yeah, they believe what they believe, but they're not sure why they believe it? That was part of, of my whole teaching style. Um, I encouraged them to ask me anything. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't ask the questions, I would ask them the questions. Right. To force them to think, make them a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so why I, is it important though? Why is it important to not only believe what you believe, but to understand also why you believe it? Because that's how we separate, separate out authentic from beliefs mm-hmm. from, let's call it propaganda. Let's call it folk wisdom. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's call it the prejudices. I mean, let's take this conversation out of the Jewish arena and apply it mm-hmm. to politics, to social issues. Um, you know, if you know, I grew up in a, in a home, very unusual for a Jewish home to be very politically conservative, um, especially in Southern California, uh, <laughs> both my parents were very, very politically conservative and growing up, that was my political view because that's mm-hmm. what I heard at home. Right. As I got older, I wanted to, you know, I would say things and people would challenge me and I couldn't defend what I said because I hadn't really thought it through. So then I have two choices, retreat, <laughs> double down, mm-hmm. call people names. I mean, this is what we see passes for political debate today. Mm-hmm. You know, make the other side out to be villains because then I don't have to engage in the issues. Right. Or I could really start talking to people, studying, learning, understanding. And over the course of time, I developed my own political outlook, 
which is more moderate than that which I grew up with. Um, if we ask the questions, then we can discover whether the, the, the principles, the beliefs that we were taught and that we absorb are worth believing. Right. And when we do, we're much more secure. One of the great rabbis of the last generation, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, he said that all extremism and fanaticism comes from insecurity. When we're insecure, we end up becoming extreme because we feel threatened by anybody who makes us think, anybody who mm. confronts us. It's a secure person can't be an extremist. Is that 100% that's what you believe too? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a Yiddish proverb, nobody ever died from a question. <laughs> but if sure. I'm insecure about what I believe and who I am, um, questions are very threatening. And uh, a lot of people would rather avoid the question through some form of deflection. So I wanna ask you about open-mindedness because I know that you mentioned before people who are more open-minded, I just wanna make sure I got this clear tend to be more liberal and less open-minded tend to be more conservative. Now, I really don't want to get into politics. Not, but not quite, see, that's not quite the way to phrase it. It's not open-mindedness. Yeah. Openness. Openness. Yeah. It's so like more, others you're saying. Well, open to new experiences, open to new ideas, open to new way of looking at things. Right. It's not exactly the same as open-mindedness. So, okay, so I do want to ask you, um, I don't, I really don't want to get into politics, but I do want to ask you based on what's going on right now in the political system with liberals on one side, Democrats on one side, Republicans on the other side. As you see, the liberals are not so open, really. They are, they are their belief and they're not looking at the other side. So how do you explain that? Yeah, well, the problem is, as with so many things, and this is, this is really how I started off my whole TED talk, is talking about labels. Mm -hmm. The problem with labels is that they end up meaning whatever we want them to mean. A lot of people who call themselves liberals are not really liberals, or they don't know what liberalism is. A lot of people are conservatives, don't know what conservatism is. Because if you look at the classical definitions, I could be a liberal and a conservative. Conservatism is a respect for the past and tradition. Liberalism is a vision of making the world better and, and improvement. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to argue about with either one of those positions. It's really just a question of, you know, am I a little bit this leaning this way, leaning that way? Where's my main perspective? But today we use these labels right. and it's really all about um, dogma and ideology and identity politics. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Democratic Party has a very vocal element that is trying to pull it way far to the left beyond liberalism. Mm -hmm. the, cons the Republican Party is, doesn't even know who it is anymore because <laughs> Donald Trump, who wasn't even a Republican before he ran for president, right. um, ended up taking the party in, 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 in all sorts of directions and so you know, the identity crisis that the country's having has gotten worse and gotten more polarized. And what we really need is to create a kind of grassroots movement 
moderate conservatives who are willing to talk to each other and have a dialogue and look for common ground and marginalize the extremists mm -hmm. instead of feeling like we have to join the extremists because they're the ones who are controlling the, the conversation. Right. Now, before we get to your story of how you became who you are, because you know, I want people to understand where you came from and how you got to where you are before talking more about truth and, and all of that, which I want to ask you how you found the ultimate truth. Um, I, I do want to ask you before we get there, you did start uh, news, like you do daily news, right? Every single day for the past, you have 18 episodes out. I think you posted your 18th episode today. Did you start this because of what's going on right now in the world? In the media? Uh, I'm doing three a week at the moment. And oh, wow. I've been doing I've been doing videos for, for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. And I, I keep tweaking the presentation style. So my my most recent book is called Grappling with the Gray, which is a, a collection of, of ethical scenarios and ethical dilemmas. Mm -hmm. um, guiding the reader to look at these these dilemmas from both sides before trying to make a conclusion or reach a conclusion. And so uh, I was on a, on a podcast uh, with, with Dove Baron, who suggested that I use Grappling with the Gray as a, a sort of a structure for um, contemporary, addressing contemporary issues. Mm -hmm. So I'm calling it uh, Grappling with the Gray News of the Day. Oh, cool. And That's what your book is called. The book's Grappling with the Gray. And then the news the is, called is called Grappling with the Gray. The video is called News of the Day, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not a completely new idea. It's just a little bit different packaging. Right. No, I hear what you're saying. And do you want to make this into something bigger, like a bigger news channel? Or you're happy with what you do right now with posting your videos? Well, I, I haven't really planned that far ahead. If it, if it grows, that's fine. Uh, I actually have just started a um, podcast with uh, where we're supposed to be releasing our first episode uh, within the next week uh, called the wow, Rabbi. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. It's called The Rabbi and the Shrink. My partner is a, is a psychologist. Uh, so uh, we're also discussing ethical issues. Uh, me from a philosophical uh, and theological perspective and she from mm -hmm. a, a psychological perspective. And we're having a lot of fun so far. We've only recorded six episodes, but- That's awesome. Away. And each episode is going to focus on another topic or how, yeah, how, how a topic you... within the larger um, umbrella of, of ethics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get to your story about how you grew up, how you, you know, you started hitchhiking across America and then you traveled the globe. So take us back to when you were younger, you're in university. How was your background? How were you brought up? So I was raised um, like a pretty typical secular American. Mm -hmm. um, even less Jewish training than most Jews. Uh, I never learned the Hebrew olive base. I never had a bar mitzvah ceremony, mm -hmm. um, never attended synagogue. I think we had a Passover Seder, uh, maybe when I was very young, maybe six or so, but oh, not wow. after that. Uh, you know, we had, a, we had a tree next to the fireplace in December, not because it had any religious significance, just because it was, you know, something that people do. And um, I knew I was Jewish. I knew it was important. I didn't know why uh, it didn't mm -hmm. really have any great effect upon me or, or my, my way of thinking. 
And when I graduated from college, I had a degree in English, which had been very um, interesting and mind-opening and thought-provoking, but didn't really prepare me for a career. And so I did the only thing that seemed to make any kind of reasonable sense. I put on a backpack and started hitchhiking across the United States. <laughs> Why did that make sense? Like that, like normal people, like regular, you just go and get a job. That and shouldn't, yeah, exactly. I'm not, in, not, I'm not in, <laughs> advising anybody to do this, especially today. Uh, I did in the 80s, which was a little late uh, by, by the 60s, end of the 60s and 70s. It was already uh, not something that was done. But yeah. you know, I realized that I had grown up in a very comfortable middle-class home existence. Mm -hmm. My life had been very structured. Um, I had studied, but I really didn't have much life experience. Uh, and you know, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really have anything to write about. I didn't have experiences of my own. I didn't have any great ideas that were my own. Mm -hmm. And and I realized what today all the all the gurus are telling us is that we have to get out of our comfort zone. If yeah, that's grow, what they always say with writers: go experience something and go write about it. Right, what you know about. Right? Yes, exactly. But even if you don't want to be a writer, um, you know, growth only. There's a reason why they call growing pains. Growing hurts. Right. You go to the gym. You work out. If you're not sore afterwards, you weren't really working out. It's true. Right? You, you, you turn up when you when it gets too easy on the treadmill or the elliptical, you turn up the resistance because if you don't, you're not accomplishing anything. So at least I had that mindset. I needed to challenge myself. I needed to put myself in unfamiliar situations. I needed to have experiences outside the classroom. And um, why did I pick uh, hitchhiking? Uh, one, it was um, relatively inexpensive. <laughs> Don't have to pay for transportation. And, and <laughs> two, it was really, it was the best way I could think of, of putting myself in an uncomfortable situation where day to day, mm -hmm. I could not anticipate what I was going to have to deal with. And Do you have any siblings though? Like who wanted to come along, who like maybe? <laughs> I'm only child. You're an only child. So your parents, you finished university, you picked up and went hitchhiking and your parents are probably like, who knows what's gonna happen on the road. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it made it better and worse. Um, all the pressure was on me. On the other hand, my parents couldn't cut me off because <laughs> there was nobody else. <laughs> it doesn't seem so safe to just go hitchhiking, especially you were what, how old were you? You said 24? I was 24. And you just picked up and went hitchhiking. Did you at least have pepper spray with you? <laughs> no, we didn't. Pepper spray wasn't a thing back then. Um, so you, you never know, felt, I mean, it wasn't I, scary for you. You I'm never felt like you were in danger. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, um, I, I don't look like a pushover. Um, you know, maybe now I do, but then I didn't. <laughs> oh, and, but still, it's not so safe to go. I mean, no, maybe no, nowadays. No, no. Nowadays, it would be absolute madness. Um, and even then, it was not, it was not a, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't re re recommended it. I wouldn't want my kids doing it. And, right. uh, you know, one, one fellow picked me up in Texas and he, he told me that um, you know more murders per capita happened on this stretch of highway than anywhere in the country. Oh my God! Uh, yeah, yeah, and you were nervous. Of, yeah. Well, you know, again, there there were a couple of times I didn't get in a car um, because people just looked too questionable. Mm -hmm. I just didn't feel comfortable doing it. Uh, one time I did get in a car with uh, with three guys wearing leather. 
it was getting dark, which you're not supposed to be hitchhiking in the dark. And I didn't have a place. To, I was trying to reach a, a place to go. I hadn't gotten there yet. You're always supposed to know where you're going to be at night. So I'd already mm -hmm. broken those rules of hitchhiking. There's certain rules you follow. One is know where you're going, where you're going to be at night. One is don't hitchhike at night. And one is don't get in the car with more than two people. So oh, no. now having broken two of the rules, I had to decide if I'm going to break the third one. And these guys, I didn't know. Were they going to a, were they bikers? Were they going to a, to a, a fight? Were they going to a Scorpions concert? I, I didn't know what they were doing. But against my better judgment, I got in the car with me. And they asked mm -hmm. me where I was going, what I was doing. And I told them uh, uh, where I was trying to get. And they said, oh, gee, you know, we, we, can't, um, we can't drive you there because we're, we're on our way to the Scorpions concert. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, but we'll take you to the bus stop and ask the bus driver, and he'll tell you how to get there. Nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. Wow. So you know, here I was thinking that I was putting myself in tremendous danger. Right. And in fact, uh, everything was great. Now, of course, it could have turned out differently. Well, look, you live to tell the tale, and that's an experience that you probably were looking for to like something that you could write about. Like you literally could write a whole story about how scared you were, and you could explain how they talked and what they wore and how they looked and how you felt approaching the car or they approached you. But um, then you survived. You could say that literally took away stereotypes, labels that you put on them. Exactly. Were you ever stuck in a situation when you were hitchhiking that you, nobody was coming to pick you up, like nobody wanted you to get in the car and you were just left walking and walking and walking? Uh, yeah. Um... In fact, I was I was going heading for a campground on Galveston Island, um, mm -hmm. off the coast of uh, of Texas, and I got a ride down to the the coastal um, highway, and then it was seven miles to mm -hmm. the uh, to the campground, and I started walking with my thumb out, and nobody. Uh, one guy stopped to pick me up. He looked shady. Didn't feel comfortable getting in. Uh, so I ended up walking seven miles at night with my backpack. Uh, and when I got there, the, uh, the campground was closed. <laughs> so I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get a spot in the campground. Oh my God. You couldn't just jump the fence and sleep there. No, all the, uh, if there's signups at all of those campsites were taken. So I, I actually had to find a, uh, a relatively hidden place and just sleep out for the night. Wow. Now here's the question. Like if you would stick your hand out, someone looks shady. You didn't go in their car. Perhaps they were either a murderer or someone dangerous. It doesn't matter if you got in the car or not. If they saw that you were alone, wouldn't they just take you? Not necessarily. Uh, if no. you're on a highway and people, there's traffic going by, um, or like in one case, it was a van. Um, you know, when it went driving by, uh, somebody stuck out a finger and made a rude gesture, and, and then it stopped and backed up, and a hand came out and motioned me. Wow. I wasn't the least bit interested in getting, getting a van with several people after they've right. already demonstrated that they're not of the most refined character. <laughs> so oh my gosh. There, there, so was a, the there was a funny story. Well, now it's funny. Um, I, had, I was trying to get to a, to a youth hostel in Brunswick, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a great day for hitchhiking. I just got ride after ride after ride. And I was only 20 miles away from where it says, there's a video on my, on my uh, YouTube channel that uh, talks about this. It's 20 miles away and it's getting dark. And I figured, okay, I can get there. 
So I start heading down the highway and my, my thumb stuck out and there's one pickup truck after another, after another, after another. And there's a pickup truck. Let me get in the back. I don't need to get in the, I don't need to get the passenger seat with you. Nobody stopped. Hi. And finally it's pitch black. It's getting late. And it's just one ranch house after another. There's no, there are no woods. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I was thinking these ranch houses, these great big front, front yards with trees and bushes. You know, I could sleep on somebody's front yard. No. I'd probably never even notice. I'd wake up at the dawn, get off the property. And then I thought, you know, maybe in the deep south, that's not the best idea. No, that is not <laughs> the best idea. So instead, I picked a, I picked a house at random. I walked mm -hmm. up, knocked on the door, fellow, middle-aged fellow opens the door. And I said, excuse me, I'm on my way to, to, to Brunswick, Georgia. I was hitchhiking, I got stuck. Um, would you mind if I, I just pitch my sleeping bag on your, on your property tonight and I'll be gone first thing in the morning? He looked at me for a long time. He said, well, you could do that, but we have a guest house out back. You could stay there if you like. Wow. I said, That'd be really nice. <laughs> said, I would be nervous about that guy. He said, okay. <laughs> he took me out to the guest house. Told me to help myself to anything in the fridge. And, um, and he told me also, as he, was, as he was getting ready to go, he said, it's a good thing you didn't go to one, one of my neighbors. He said, there's a, a guy over on this side. He has a couple of dogs that attack anything that moves. And there's an old lady on this side who's scared and she keeps a shotgun by the front door. Oh my, you think he was lying to scare you or you think he was no, lying to No, you? he seemed like a very, you know, very down to earth guy. Uh, wow. So, you know, there, there are a number of lessons there. Uh, one is that, you know, if, if you, if I, if I would have done the unethical thing and just stayed on the property, mm -hmm. I might've gotten away with it. Right but I ended up being much more comfortable because I asked somebody for help. Most people want to give help. Not everybody's going to give it to that degree. Um, but also we never know, you know, we never know what dangers are lurking out there. We never know how closely we come to, to danger. We never know the narrow escapes. It's, it's, you know, it comes down to being grateful. You know, there's so much to complain about these days, you know, with jobs and health and, and you know, serious problems. People are dying. People are in danger. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, that shouldn't make us forget to be grateful for the things that we have, for the things that are good in our lives. Because yeah. a lot of it just comes down to noticing what we have. The, the Hebrew word for for gratitude is, is hakar satov, which literally means recognizing the good. If we pay attention to what's good in our lives, we will be grateful and gratitude makes us happier. It makes right. us feel better. That's, that is definitely true. And did you see that guy again in the morning? Like, did he come to wake you up or anything? Or you just like slept there and left? No, but right I left away? a note thanking him and, um, and went on my way. Wow, you just listening to your hitchhiking story, I know we didn't even get to when you traveled the globe, but you lived so much. Like, it's a little bit like interesting to, to hear how you were saying how you didn't have so many experiences before, you know, in high school and university, 
but now you're hitchhiking and you're meeting so many new people, you know, trying to live under, like, just trying to live because you need to get to the next stop. You know what I'm saying with hitchhiking? Yeah, you have to be careful. Um, you know, most of, you know, most of life is a fair amount of routine. Mm -hmm. And hitchhiking is not romantic. It's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot of standing at the side of the road. Uh, I stood at the side of the road in Denver for three hours in a snowstorm. Wow. Nothing romantic about that. <laughs> so what did you have? You had like winter boots, regular sneakers. You took like different stuff. Like, uh, you, like how did you carry much, it? Uh, regular shoes. Uh, I had, a, I had a, a poncho. I had sweaters, but I couldn't feel my feet by the time I got picked up. Um, wow. You know, you think people are going to feel sorry for you in the, so in the snow and the rain. No, they don't want to get their cars wet. That's true. <laughs> And I have to ask you this question. You went hitchhiking for a purpose. The purpose was, you know, new life experiences to find the truth. Did you find what you were looking for? Uh, I did eventually. Um, you know, I, I felt that on some level, I was on a search for truth. I wanted to find meaning in life. I wanted to, to gain a deeper understanding about what life was all about. Mm -hmm. And after one of the things I learned hitchhiking, and again, I talk about this in my TED talk, is the value of listening. And when yes. we listen to other people and we hear their stories, um, we learn more about them, we learn more about ourselves. The more we understand people in general, the more we understand the human condition, the more we understand ourselves. And that was incredibly valuable. Um, I went across the Atlantic, I went backpacking across Europe for half a year, and I ended up in Israel. And that's wow. when we connected with, uh, with Judy, it wasn't really reconnected because I'd, I'd never been connected, but I connected with Jewish tradition and I discovered a whole, uh, what I never expected to find there. <laughs> never would have expected to find uh, the, I thought I was gonna find truth on an ashram in India uh, or Nepal, uh, but- yeah. So why didn't you go there first? Or maybe you did go there first? I was on my way there. But so Israel, you were stopping off. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna go Europe, Israel, Africa, Asia, Australia. Uh, wow. And I never expected to find anything in Israel that would really speak to me. And because I was open to listening, to hearing, to what others had to say before I judged, before I shut them down, before I, I moved on, yeah. uh, I recognized there was something there. It was a vibrant, profound, deep, meaningful society, culture, and heritage. Mm -hmm. And when I gave myself a chance to discover what it was, I ended up staying in Israel for nine years. Wow. Now you said about listening with hitchhikers, you know, I also listened to your TED talk, how you said they're, they need to just talk. They're basically talking to themselves, but you're there to make them feel more comfortable. It's very interesting because with podcasting as a host, I'm just, I love talking with people communicating. It has taught me so much of how to listen to somebody. Generally, I was always talking, but now with podcasting, it's different. I'm the host. I ask you the question. You're the one that's talking. I'm getting to know you rather than you getting to know me. So it's, it's, it's amazing to be a listener. It, it, it changes your entire, with, especially with me, like my entire mindset has changed. Like it's not about me. It's about you and it's about other people. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been on, I don't know, I think 90 podcasts now. Um, wow. Congrats. And thank you. And it's, um, you know, some, some podcast hosts really have a talent for being able to 
keep it conversational, but always make it about the guest. Yes, that's what it's uh, about. And it's if you can do that, you you seem to have a pretty good uh, a pretty good handle on how to do that. Um, that's what makes you successful. Letting helping other people tell their stories. Yes, exactly. Because it's about the it really is ultimately about the other person's stories. Now you went to Israel and you you found this you know this yeshiva you went to learn in. And when did you realize that you wanted to stay for good? I mean, for nine years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I should have I should have run from there running and screaming um, because uh, I, I would um, I would talk to people at the cafeteria or just as fellows that I met and they'd say, how long have you been here? I'd say a couple of weeks. And then they'd say, oh, I came for a couple of weeks. I said, when was that? Seven years ago, nine years ago, 11 years ago. <laughs> wow. So I don't know why I didn't get frightened off by that, but yeah, uh, really, it was it was the shock factor of coming into a classroom, having a a rabbi take the uh, the position of, of lecture, and a Hasidic rabbi with the big hat and the long coat and the side locks and the beard and the thick glasses, and and I thought I can't listen to this person. I mean, he's just gonna, he's gonna tell us we're all gonna burn in hell. Um, what, what could he possibly have to say that would be relevant to me? Mm -hmm. And the truth is that I, I would have walked out, except I'd taken a seat in the far back corner of the room and I was trapped. <laughs> I couldn't get out, literally. And so, I heard that, but why did you go there anyways? Like, why would you go into a yeshiva if you don't, I don't like, why would you, what brought you there? And so what brought me there is, is I got to Israel and I was planning on having a classic Jewish experience by, by volunteering on a kibbutz. Okay. Uh, yeah, I figured I'd pick oranges and grapefruits for a couple of months. I, I was burned out on traveling. I mean, traveling is exhausting. I was living out of a backpack every day and looking for a new place to sleep every night. And, I, and I, I ended up at a street corner in Vienna and I couldn't make up my mind whether to turn right or left. It didn't matter because I wasn't going anywhere. I was just walking the city. I right. literally couldn't make up my mind which way to go. I said, this is ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> not accomplishing anything at this right. point. So the idea was to find someplace where I could have a routine. I figure volunteering kibbutz, have, have work every day. I didn't have a lot of money, so I don't have to pay for it. I'll do that for a couple of months and then I'll continue on my trip. Well, that's, mm. that year, the dollar was at an all-time high. And there were eight or nine million Americans in Europe. And when it started getting cold, they all headed south. <laughs> And so when I got into the kibbutz placement office, I think it was November, mm -hmm. there were signs up saying, no places for volunteers, come back next year. Uh, they all had the same idea as you. Yeah, and I, nobody could, I, I talked to people, nobody ever heard of such a thing that you couldn't find a place on a kibbutz. It was, right. it was unheard of. Well, the whole point was to have routine. I didn't just wanna hang out. I didn't have money to do that anyway. So I remember I'd, I had heard once about something called yeshiva. It's a place where you could go and you could study the Old Testament. <laughs> so I thought, okay, maybe I'll go look into that. It'll give me something to do, keep me occupied. And, you know, they didn't charge rent and they gave me three meals a day and they gave me routine. Oh, they didn't charge you. No, the, uh, you know, I, I'm one of the, the original off the wall Jews. Off the what? Off the wall. 
off the wall Jews, you said? Yeah. I never heard that term before. Oh yeah, well, it's, 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 it's not so applicable anymore, but we'd be traveling, we'd come to Israel, we'd find our way to the Western Wall and we get picked up. Ah, uh, that's why it's off the wall because they picked wall. you up. Yeah, uh, exactly. okay. literally off the wall. <laughs> And uh, you know, then they 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 were pretty good at figuring out which yeshiva to send us to. Uh, some go here, some go there. Different different styles, different personalities. And so um, I was going down the stairs to the uh, to the Western Wall, and behind me somebody called out, "Where are you from?" And I turned around. And this guy's there. And we start talking, and he and he says, "You want to go to yeshiva?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, that's where I ended up. And it was, you know, I, I just thought it would be kind of intellectually stimulating. Right. And was it for, was for, it for that for you? What's that? And it was. And it was. Well, you know, the, the first the, the 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 first class was okay. I mean, nothing, nothing terribly exciting. But the second class was a combination of two things. It, it was the lecturer, his name was Rabbi David Gottlieb, who is a legend uh, in the yeshiva world. Uh, he, was a, he was a professor of philosophy at Johns Hopkins University. He mm. himself did not grow up religious. Oh, wow. And he has an incredible ability to communicate Jewish ideas in a way that's very, very compelling. And he violates the stereotype of how he looks. He looks like he should have a thick accent. He looks like he should be yelling at us, we're going to burn in hell. And instead, he sounds like a college professor because he was one. And that was the first, that was the initial shock for me is how can someone who looks like this sound like this? It just doesn't make sense. They don't go together. That was the first um, sort of blow that, that got me to reconsider my preconceptions. Now, I want to ask you about that because what did you think about Hasidish people or Jewish people? from an outsider's perspective before you went into yeshiva? I mean, I knew nothing about them. I just assumed they were living in little ghettos, that they never engaged the, the, the secular world, that they didn't know anything about the outside world. Um, and what could I possibly learn from them? Or how could I possibly engage them in a, in a, in a, in a conversation? And, and here you've got a Hasidic um, rabbi who's, who's talking about uh, you know, philosophy. And he's, so imagine that you're sitting down with a cheeseburger. <laughs> no way, for real? Yeah. Saying, wow. Wait a minute, you're not supposed to be talking like this. <laughs> exactly. So it's that, and, and, and this is really what I think we need so much more of. It's what I try to do in my presentations because I come in, I look like an Orthodox rabbi. Mm -hmm. Right. And people come up to me on the street, are oh, you a rabbi? Um, which is kind of funny because I'd look this way even if I weren't, but that's beside the point. <laughs> and I, I got up on the TED stage and I introduced myself. I said, I'm a, I'm a religious fundamentalist. Yes. And there's dead silence in the audience. Because, <laughs> I heard that. I was like, oh, whoa, boy, it's silent. Silent. What are we in for? What's this guy doing here? Yeah. And then I then I broke into a smile. I said, I know that's a dangerous way to start a talk. And everybody cracked up and it broke the ice. And yeah. And, and the talk was really about stereotypes and being open-minded and, and mm -hmm. not labeling people. 
And, and the great moment for me is when I finished my talk and mm -hmm. I, came, I came off the stage, I was going back to the auditorium and a woman intercepted me. And she said, you know, when you got up on that stage, I knew exactly what kind of person you were. And I knew exactly what kind of talk you were gonna give. And you just blew away all my expectations. Thank you so much. Wow. And it was so gratifying is that it, it was life coming full circle. And it, it's, it, it was the, the whole point of the talk to right. get us to look at people different from us and give ourselves the chance to get to know who they are mm -hmm. and what they think and what they're all about. And you're an awesome person to do that because you have this entire life experience of not growing up in a Jewish home. And you did stereotype or you did with the Hasidish rabbi that when you first came in, you thought he'd be something completely, completely different. How can I learn from him? And then you, you saw through your own life how you could take away those labels and those stereotypes. Yeah, and, and you know, whenever we want to have a message, we want to come from a position of credibility. Mm -hmm. So if right. you know, you, you have people who are you know, they're they're coaches to teach you how to make a million dollar business. Did you ever make a million dollar business? <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't. Why are you trying to teach me how to do it? Right. You know, when, exactly. When my daughter was was uh, you know in, in finishing high school, and we're talking about what she wanted to be. She said, well, "I was thinking maybe I'd be a life coach." I said, that's great, but you got to have a life first. <laughs> right, exactly. Like people are dating coaches and they're single, like 21-year-old dating coaches. I'm like, what's going on here? You're not married. You're 21. How are you a dating coach? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, if, if, if I'm going to position myself as, as, a, as a sales coach or a marketing coach, mm -hmm. I'm not, I have no business doing that because I've never done those things. If I want right. to talk about culture and relationships, um, that's something I can talk about. And that's, that's why I can, I can speak about company culture mm -hmm. because I've been in company culture and I have the philosophy to break down what makes it work, what makes it fail. Right. And, but when, it comes yeah. to, when it comes to people, okay, we, have to, we have to get a chance to know who they are. We have to discover their stories uh, and then we can start to learn from them. And if we're willing to do that, then, then you can do what the sages say, which is to learn from every person. That's someone who is wise, somebody who learns from every person. Right, that's true. Now, I want to, before I get into more stereotype um, and label questions that I have for you, because you are the one I want to ask all these questions to, can you tell me about how your experience was walking down to the Western Wall? What you felt, how, what was going on with your emotions, if you felt anything? Well, it's actually, that's a two-part story um, because I was actually in Israel once before. I was oh. on a student tour and we were, we had a lot of different places we went. So I was in Israel for four days and I didn't, I got there. I didn't really have a plan. I wasn't part of a group. And through a strange series of events, I ended up being taken down to the Western Wall on Friday evening at sunset. Beautiful time to go. Now, keep in mind, I had heard about a wailing wall. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know its significance. At that point in my life, I didn't even know if I believed in God. And I'm with a few people and we're following this guy who's leading us and we turn a corner 
And there's the Western Wall now. The Western Wall, the, the sunset lights up the top of the wall as the rest of the, um, the, uh, the courtyard is in shadow. You have mm -hmm. hundreds of Jews gathered together to welcome the Sabbath. And they're chanting and they're singing and they're in different uh, quorums and, and all their voices are blending together. And I turn the corner and I look down and I hear this sound coming up and I see this side. I have no idea what I'm looking at or what it means or what it's all about or why it's important. And I was absolutely transported. There's just something in me that said, this is what life's all about. This is truth. This is God. This is meaning. And, and my friends were pulling out their cameras to take pictures. I think, mean, why in the world would you take a picture? This is not going to come out on film. Right. And, and I, was, I was so overwhelmed. I, di I didn't know what to do with those feelings. Wow. Um, I had no context to put them into. Because you didn't know what they were. You didn't know what was going on. I didn't, I didn't inside know anything. You. I didn't know anything. It was, it was this tremendous surge of emotion and, and revelation, but without any understanding to go with it. And I left Israel with this tremendous resolution to learn about being Jewish and what it meant. But the group I was with, we had a lot of other stops afterwards. And so by the time I got back home, all of these experiences were diluted uh, one with the other. And yeah. I still felt that it was important, but I, I didn't have the burning desire to investigate. And there really wasn't anywhere where I was in college, I went to a small college in Northern California that yeah. um, didn't really have much in the way of Jewish resources. So I was gonna ask you how long it stayed with you, this feeling, but if you went to other places, then you're saying that it diminished. Do you feel that if you went to Israel last, it would have been different? Oh yeah, yeah. Really? Absolutely. Do you feel bad about that or, or you don't feel bad that yeah, it didn't happen this that is, way? This is one of those things that, um, that there's no there's no point in, in regretting things that you didn't have any control right. over. <laughs> no, I hear, but did you feel that God existed at that moment? From that moment, yeah. But then you were saying that when you were in high school, you were an atheist. In high school, well, yeah. Uh, I mean, again, saying I was an atheist was was not, um, you know, it, it seemed fashionable at the time. Ah, uh, okay. But inside of you, deep down, you always had this oh, feeling I, that I there really is God? No, not really. I mean, I tell the story in the, in the TED Talk also that I was in high school and chatting with a with another classmate. Bob I, Gordon. Bob Gordon, that's right. Um, yes. And uh, and I said to him, uh, I told, for whatever reason. Bob we, Gordon. Yeah, you know, for whatever famous. reason, I told him I'm an atheist, and he says, well, that's stupid. I said, what do you mean? And he said, it makes no more sense to, to, to not believe in God than it makes to believe in God, because you can't prove either one. So why do you want to believe in something you can't prove? Which I thought was pretty, pretty sharp for a high school student. And um, for whatever reason, I accepted what he said. And so I stopped calling myself an atheist. I started calling myself an agnostic. And that's pretty much where I was when I got to Israel the second time. No, no deeply rooted beliefs, just this experience that told me that something was there. Right. But without being able to define it or, or, or understand it.
Right, which is so interesting that the COSEL, the Western Wall, could do that to somebody who you've never really, you know, known that much about Judaism. You say you didn't have a bar mitzvah, you did not grow up knowing the Aleph phase, and that just going to the wall, you experienced that. Now, how was it going back the second time? Were yeah, you second time? Was didn't it, feel was it like a memory? Like, whoa! Yeah, was, I, I had the memory. Before? I had the memory, but I didn't feel any of it. You did it the second time. You didn't feel nothing. Nope. Yeah. Wow. Why is that? You know, God gives you know us what? gifts. God gives us gifts. He gives us the gifts we need. And at that moment, I needed to have that experience for free. When you were younger, the first as time. As a gift, right? Later on, I had to work to get it back. And now when I go to the to the to the Western Wall, you know, I don't feel what I what I originally felt. I've never felt that again. I feel a lot more now because I understand it, because it has meaning to me. And, and I've studied so much and I've taught so much about it. And I really have a have a an emotional in, and an intellectual investment in right. what it is. So now it's a, it's a much more meaningful experience. Still, nothing like that initial you know revelation. Right. But it was very disappointing to go the second time and feel nothing. <laughs> you felt absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I. I don't know how that's, how is that, maybe because Hashem was saying, I gave it to you the first time, now yeah. you have to work for it. Is that what you're exactly, saying? Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, think about the, the, the Jewish day of mourning is Tisha B'Av, uh, right. where we mourn the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem. We sit on the floor, uh, we put ashes on our heads, we, we fast. And how many of us cry? That's true. It's very hard to cry over something that is so emotionally distant from us. Right. What we what we should do is that whenever we you know sometimes you, you're 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 reading a, a book you're watching a movie and they you know, it's very emotional you get you feel yourself getting misty over it you know yeah but, you know, here I'm crying over this silly movie in this book and I can't cry over something that's really important well it's because one's immediate and it's tapping into my emotions the other's abstract and it's different distant. So at that point, that's a time to reflect and think about well, what what should now that I find myself getting all teary, what should I be crying about? Is you make a connection. That's such a smart thing that you just said. Yeah, you know, it's not mine. I mean, I learned this from my rabbis. Um, it, it's it's a way of of connecting our emotions with our intellect, which we all need a lot of help doing. Right. Some people are just emotionless, if that's even a word. They don't have emotion and they can't show, maybe they have, but they, maybe they can't show emotion. So that also maybe could be why people don't cry often and they just don't show emotion, let's say on Tisha B'Av or any of these holidays. Yeah, well, you know, for, for a very long time, it was considered unmasculine to cry. Right, um, now well, it's 2021 now. Yeah, now I think maybe we've gone a little too far the other direction. You see some of these uh, these ball players that are retiring and they're sobbing while they're, just, Come on. <laughs> You've been a superstar for years. You're a multimillionaire. Yeah, exactly. Just, just, act, act your age. <laughs> yeah. And it's emotional, but pull yourself together. <laughs> yeah. Now I want to ask you how your parents reacted to you becoming religious because you, you know, you worked for it and you actually found the truth for yourself that you were searching for. You went hitchhiking, you traveled the globe, then you came to Israel and you found your truth. How did your parents react? to this? No, that was, that was traumatic. Um, traumatic? Traumatic for them. 
<laughs> oh, for them. I was like, oh man, for you? Yeah, I mean, now, now they've got the son, the religious fanatic. Um, you know, as far as they were concerned, I got into a cult. They knew nothing mm -hmm. about this. And they didn't understand it. And it, it, it was, my, my father didn't talk to me for a year. Um, it was, uh, you know, they, they saw it as a rejection of their values. Aye. And, you know, they couldn't understand. I didn't have a plan. You know, I was, I was just going to be staying and learning for the unforeseeable future. There's no plan. There's no logic. There's no explanation for all this. It was very, very upsetting to them. And, uh, yeah. and then I called home and told them I was engaged and that just made it worse. Why are you getting married? You don't know, <laughs> you, you, you know, plan for life. It really only got better when I became a rabbi, when I got a job teaching, uh, when I started publishing articles, this, this was success on their terms. Which is how much longer after you became religious? Uh, it was about five years, five and a half years. Wow, so you finally finding your truth. It must've been so hard for you or challenging for you that your parents didn't fully accept it or maybe didn't fully understand. It, it wasn't so hard. I, I was always very independent. And, you know, my, my father was the classic um, child of the Depression. You know, he was, okay. he was seven, seven years old in 1929 when the, when the Great Depression started. And life was, life was survival. You know, people then did not sit around questioning the meaning of life and what am I here for and how can I be fulfilled? Nobody asked those questions. They were too busy trying to stay alive. And he saw his father at dinner time, seven days a week, for years. His father would get up, be gone from the house when my when my dad woke up in the morning, to go to work to keep his business running. Mm -hmm. He'd come home. They'd sit down for dinner. They'd eat. My father would go to bed. That was, that was his relationship with his father. Wow. And then he went to college. Went to went to World War II. Went back to college on the GI Bill got a job, became a businessman, became successful. And his whole life was about personal responsibility. You provide security for your family. You, you do what needs to be done. And here you've got this son who was very artistic and very philosophical and, and wanted to understand life and wanted to find meaning that he could never understand. It was just right. so far from his experience. And then, he'd be, then I'd go and become a religious fanatic in his eyes. Um, you know, it, it was very, very difficult for him. And right, I can imagine. It's know, also like they brought you up in a certain way. They wanted you to, they, they wanted you to follow in that path. Or maybe parents think that we work so hard bringing up our child. We want them to be in a certain way. They picture their child ending up a certain way. And then you didn't follow that path. Right. And I could have gone into my father's business and I could have gone to my grandfather's law firm. I had all these opportunities. And I wasn't interested in any of them. And what's wrong with me? Um, <laughs> and, and I can perfectly understand why they reacted that way. But, you know, I, 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 was, I was doing what I felt was necessary, what was right. Yeah. And fortunately, part of Judaism is a commandment to honor your parents. Mm -hmm. So I had an obligation to continue trying to reach out and maintain the relationship. Part of what helped is that they saw what happened to their friends' kids who, whose lives were 
messes. I. Yeah, their relationships, their work ethic, their, I mean, yeah. <laughs> one after another. And uh, I still remember the, <laughs> the day my father said to me, you know, maybe, maybe you're doing the right thing after all. <laughs> oh, wow. Five years down the line. <laughs> How did that thought? make you feel? Was that really like you finally felt accepted, good and happy? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and they, would, they would have people call them and tell them they saw my articles. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was honored by the school where I taught, and, and uh, my, 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 my mother came to to the uh, you know, to the to the, to the, to the you know, scholarship dinner, the, the dinner where I was being honored. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it eventually, <laughs> and then they had grandchildren who were growing up, and you know, and the, and the grandchildren were so attentive. Right. So you know, they got there. Right. But it was a long, it was a long, it was a long road. And what would you say are some of your biggest challenges of becoming religious? Like what did you struggle with the most? I think the biggest challenge for me was having been to college, having traveled around the world, um, having really developed my own view and definition of what life was all about, the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. And even though I was still searching, I had, I had a basic vision of what I, how I understood life. And in, in literally no time at all, I have to confront, okay, you, you don't know anything. Wow. You're not even at square one. You are wow. starting literally from zero, from scratch. Wow. That must've been so humbling, no? Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and it's a big obstacle. Right. You know, and it can apply this to any aspect of life as business relationships. Um, you know, we become so invested mm -hmm. in our in our beliefs, in our in our preconceptions, uh, in our worldviews. And the older we are, and the longer we have those views, the more and more and more we invested we become. And then to to be able to say, I'm going to question. I'm going to change i'm going to throw out everything that i believe to be true right for years decades half a century i mean that's really scary it's really but intimidating i don't know if you fully i don't know if you fully believed in the things that you grew up in because your entire point was searching for truth yeah so yeah. it's not like you're throwing away something that you fully fully believed in it seems like you never really believed in something so strongly until you found judaism you know, and you became from. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it, this was not where I expected to find something. Right. And it, it really, you know, the, the whole idea of, I mean, I, I still had all those stereotypes of types of what an Orthodox Jewish community was. Uh, they, they didn't just disappear overnight. You know, all the structure right. and all the ritual. Um, it, it just, it, it was very, very difficult to, to reconcile that that's where truth actually lies. And that now I'm going to have to change my whole life, start over from nothing, learn it all from scratch. Um, and, and in fact, I had a conversation with, with one of my rabbis. Mm -hmm. because, and how'd it go? Well, it went well. Um, Good, happy. Well, it, it's, it's relevant, I mean, to your theme of, of you know, making, making, doing the best we can with what we have, mm -hmm. that I, I, the, the, the concept of repentance 
is, is fundamental to, to Jewish thought. And part of that is I regret the errors of the past and I commit myself to changing in the future. Mm. And so I said, does that mean I have to regret my entire past and everything in my life up until now? Right. And he well, said, what, absolutely yeah. not. He said, well, your past you, is what got you to now. Yeah, you were you were put in, you came into this world in a situation where you didn't have access to what you have now discovered. It's not your fault. It's not something you mm -hmm. have to feel remorse over. And all of the experiences that you have and everything you learned and the person you've become is now the foundation of everything you do from this point forward. So you don't regret the, the, the past. You incorporate the past into the present and use it to, to define and, and, and direct the future. And that really has become kind of my mission statement, uh, if you will. And it, it's how I can challenge people's stereotypes. It's how I can articulate a, a spiritual message to a secular audience. Mm -hmm. It's how I can take the values of a religious discipline and apply it to the professional world. It's because I lived the life I did prior to acquiring the worldview that I have now that makes me able to engage different types of audiences and yeah. provide and them with a message that's relevant for them. And you're able to speak about it because you went through it. It's not that someone's just a, like, it's not like a rabbi speaking about finding truth when he was literally brought up in a religious home, was learning, Torah was his life. You searched for it. So you're the perfect person to talk about it. Now, I do want to ask you this other question because the more I hear your story, the more I'm putting things together in my own brain, I could be totally off, but I know that you said you went to Israel the first time when you were younger, and then you were you had this thing that you never felt that again, like the second time. I'm wondering if that experience put in your subconscious that there is a bigger truth and there's something that I have to search for. And that is why your entire thing was finding truth, really finding, you know, your truth in this in this life. And that's why you went searching because you felt something. And you didn't, you didn't act on it because you were, you know, other, it was, you know, you're saying it was diminishing, but you still had it inside of you. Do you think there's any correlation? I think there is very much so, but I also think that it's, it didn't create that within me. It just made me more aware of it mm. because the truth is we all have that. You, you ever wonder, uh, Rabbi talks about this. His name is Akiva Tatz. You may be familiar with him. Um, yeah, of course. He's yeah, a great so speaker. Yeah, he, he's been very, very insightful. Yeah. Um, so he talks about homesickness. Why do we get homesick? Mm. Right. You know, you're going to, you, you plan a trip and, you, and you're looking forward to it and you go away and then you feel this sort of unsettledness until, until you get home. Well, why do you want to go away in the first place? And now why do you want to go back? It's because our souls are never completely at home in this world. We're spiritual people and we're living in a physical world and it's a kind of exile. And we're never completely comfortable here. We're always looking and feeling it should be somewhere else. 
It should be somewhere better. You know, people go to college and they go, well, maybe I should transfer, or maybe I should change my major. People get into relationships. Oh, okay, this isn't quite working. I'll go look for something else. And people change jobs. I mean, we're always looking for the next best thing because our souls are never satisfied by what the, what the physical world ha has to offer. So I wanna to go to exotic places. I wanna find new things, experience new things, see, yeah. see new, new uh, learn new things. And then I get there and now that sense of displacement, that sense of, of discomfort is, is uh, amplified because I don't even have the comfort of home anymore. And so I wanna come home and then I get home and now I feel comfortable for a while and then I start feeling that that discomfort, that, that, that displacement again. Mm -hmm. And if we're aware that that is the human condition, then we can manage it. Then I can understand. I and mean, my wife and I are coming up to our, our 34th anniversary. Uh, congratulations. In a couple of weeks. And yeah, it's wow. more congratulations for me that she's stuck, she's put up with me that long. Um, <laughs> but, you know, relationships are hard. Mm -hmm. Marriages work. And if they, when they, they, they should tell every young couple separately or maybe together that you know, you're going to have times when you actually think you made a mistake. You think you picked the wrong Like person. every day people make mistakes though. Well, yeah, but I mean, and you're in the party, you got married. You're oh, you're saying a, a mistake getting married. Yeah, to this person. No. What, yeah. people think that? Virtually everybody at some point. Oh yeah, that's scary. Okay, I'm not married yet, so. No, it's, it's worth knowing. It's important to know it, to hear it before you get married. Because then when you have that experience, you say, okay, they've warned me about this. <laughs> right. Hopefully it doesn't happen, happen so often. No, I mean, it, yeah, and again, does it happen 100% of the time? No, but I right. mean, consider the divorce rate is 50%. Um, wow. It's, uh, you know, that's the bad. Um, and it's because we don't really understand commitment. We don't really understand relationship. We're expecting perfection where we're never going to find it. Mm. And if we know ahead of time that you know, two people, different people living together, mm. that's, <laughs> I mean, how many people are going stir crazy from COVID because they're trapped in the, in the house? <laughs> you know, I, I had my, my daughter and son-in-law and, and, and uh, two kids living with us for for uh, two months. How'd that go? Uh, well, you know, we're, we're all still alive. We're all still on speaking terms. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it could have been a whole lot worse. But Was it harder for your daughter or was it harder for your son-in-law? Because um, the grandkids probably had fun. Yeah, well, they, they, they had more fun than, than we did. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, don't have a, we don't have a big house. We're not, <laughs> we're not designed to have. And my wife and I are empty nesters. We've gotten very comfortable having the place to ourselves. And, mm. I, and I, have a, I have a small office and my son and I are bumping into each other back to pack. <laughs> and, wow. Yeah, I mean, he was working in your office as well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They're living but now you room. miss them. But now you miss them now that they're not there anymore. No, we, we love it when they, we love it when they come to visit. We love it when they leave and go home. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, to people living in close proximity, it's it's very right. well, especially now. I mean, it used to be much more normal. You hear stories about families of twelve living in one room. Um, when it's when everybody's doing it, then it's normal. When everybody has a seventeen-room house, 
Right. <laughs> and I right, don't. I, exactly. only have a third, I only have a 13 room house. <laughs> then it's not normal. Like it's too difficult. Yeah. I want to ask you now that we're on the topic of not really topic, but we are talking about weddings and your daughter and your son-in-law. Did your parents come to your wedding? Because I know that they didn't accept you. or anything. My mother did. My father didn't. Your father did not come. Was the wedding in Israel? It was in Israel. And that was part of it. I mean, that was probably the main part. Yes, he didn't. He didn't want to. He didn't want to travel that far. Um, I... he, he didn't feel any connection to Israel. So he didn't really want to come. Did he ever regret that, though? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he did. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we, 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 we all made peace with the situation eventually. Right. That's very hard. I mean, your mother, so your mother accepted you, but your father did not? Mother, mothers are typically, they'll, they'll, they'll forgive a lot more than fathers will. That's just, that's just human nature. Right. No, for sure. But then your father, did he ever come to Israel to visit you or he, you only saw him after nine years? Yeah, no, no. They, they, they did come a few times. Um, and, um, you know, gradually it got better. So I want to ask you, I know that you did mention the mantra of the show, but I do want to ask you on a deeper level, how can your life experiences connect to the show's mantra of it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference? So it's really, we, we, we did touch on this in the sense yeah. that it's very easy for us to have regrets. Mm -hmm. You know, if only I would have done this differently. If only I would have made this decision differently. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a chance, I didn't take it. I, I had an opportunity, I didn't respond the right way. I, I should have spoken up when I didn't. I shouldn't have spoken up when I did. You, know, you can live your life that way. Right and be pretty unhappy. Once the past is in the past, philosophically see it as it was meant to be. Nothing's meant to be until it happens. I can change myself. I, can, I have no idea what the plan is for the world before it happens. So theoretically, anything is, is, is on the table. Are you Once saying that things just happen though? Do things just happen? We don't believe that. Right, okay. We don't believe things just happen. We do believe that we don't have control over what happens to us. Do we though? We don't have control? No, not what happens to us. We have Bahira though. Our free will is how we respond to what happens to us. Ah. But we have no control over what happens to us and we have no control over the outcomes. I can have the most brilliant, innovative, business plan in the universe that all the experts agree. Uh, you won't remember a guy named John DeLorean, who was, I don't the, know if I know that he was the president of General Motors back in the 70s. Okay. And he left General Motors and he started his own car company. And he made this really beautiful looking car. It was, it was sleek. It was brushed stainless steel. It had these gull wings that opened up. And it was, and these things were back ordered. You had to wait months to get one of these things. And everybody agreed he was going to make a fortune. And then the economy turned. There's a recession. He couldn't sell the cars. He couldn't cover his expenses. He ended up getting involved in some kind of a drug deal to try to, to, to make money and ended up serving a sentence in prison. Wow. He did everything right. 
and everybody was betting on this guy to succeed. Didn't happen. But Didn't he did happen. choose. He did choose to do the drug deal. You're oh, saying yeah, that's how he did. chose. Yeah, no, right. Definitely true. Right. So that's the response. He didn't uh, okay. have to buy drugs. He didn't have to deal drugs. He didn't have to end up in jail. But he may not have been able to save his company. Right. That's what you're saying. And the, the reaction. Who, yeah. There are people who response. do everything wrong, and it turns out right. People stumble onto um, success when no, no law, there's no logical reason why they should have succeeded. We don't control outcomes. We don't control what happens to us. We control what, how we respond. That's where free will comes in. And, and so I want, yeah. Well, so when the past is when I make a mistake, the whole mm -hmm. idea of repentance is not to beat myself up and and then whip myself and then mm -hmm. bemoan my fate. I should recognize where I was responsible. Mm -hmm. Feel bad about it. If I have to apologize to somebody, apologize for it, take responsibility, make a plan, learn from experience so that I won't commit the same errors again and again and again. That's when we really have reason. I, I have, I made the same mistake five times. Okay, now I've got reason to really, to really question my, uh, myself. It's not, it's not fate happening to me. It's my inability to learn from experience. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. If right. I'm not willing to learn from my experience and, and, uh, and, um, and change, change my behavior, then um, I have nobody to blame but myself. But once it's in the past, leave it in the past. Life is that easier now. said than done? Is that oh, easier sure. said than done? It's much easier said than done. Right. But you know the, the the joke about the uh, the guy who's complaining to his his father about you know this is this guy he he ripped me off he took advantage of me he was mean to me and, and and he's going on and on complaining about this guy and his father finally says I hope he's paying you rent what are you talking no. about he says he's taking up so much room in your head he should be paying you rent yeah you know it's bad enough we have to live through problems once. Then we, we, we play them over and over again in our mind and we relive them again and again and again and again. I mean, I've done this. I've done <laughs> it too. Believe I've me. made myself miserable over what other people have done to me that I can't change. So how do you take that out of your brain? Like what's some advice that people can do who are thinking about the past constantly? Well, sometimes th th there's no easy answer to that. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to confront the person. Sometimes that won't work. Sometimes that will make things worse. Right. Some people just don't want to take responsibility for themselves. Sometimes if you get it off your chest, that'll make you feel better. Sometimes it won't. You certainly don't want to make a fight out of it because that's definitely not going to be productive. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to give yourself time. You know, if, if I stick a pin in my hand, I pull it out, it doesn't stop hurting right away. There's residual pain. And it takes time for that pain to go away. We take right. time, we have to give ourselves permission to heal, to get over things. 
But we also, you know, if, if you break a bone, you need to go to rehab. Right. And if you don't go to rehab, your recovery is going to be much slower. And maybe so what's your advice? To go to a therapist? Well, maybe. I mean, you don't always have to run to therapy. If I find <laughs> that too much time has gone by and, and I'm still not over this, maybe I do need therapy. I can start by talking to a friend. You know, we, need to, we need to have people we trust that we can talk to. True. And that can help us have some objectivity about um, have some objectivity about our uh, our situations and how to address them. But the the most important part really is to create a clearer vision of moving forward. Okay, this happened. It hurt. It upset me. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. Or I made a huge mistake and I feel terrible that I did it. But I've done what I can do to correct it. Now, where do I go from here? Creating a plan, putting it into action, mm -hmm. that's going to get us focused forward instead of constantly looking backwards. Do you think people honestly know themselves? Well, that's, that's a generalization. I would say as a rule, no. Interesting. Because we're not taught to. We're not what do you really, mean? We're not taught what that means. You know, there, there's a very um, controversial figure, very popular figure, Jordan Peterson. Familiar with him? Um, no. He, he is, he's brilliant, um, extremely articulate, so much so that he's created a lot of enemies. <laughs> because oh, man. He's not, not because really? he's not really confrontational. He's just direct. And he's so well-reasoned. It's very hard to argue with him. And he's, he's, and, and he basically, his message is one of personal responsibility. And a lot of people just don't want to hear that. Right. But he's got a book called 12 Rules for Life. And it's an enormous bestseller. And he has, he has people, he, he talks about this. His people come up to him, they recognize him. And they, his men come up because he wrote it primarily for men. Okay. And come up and they say, thank you, you changed my life. And then their girlfriends or their wives will say, Thank you. You changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's and he, awesome. And he talks about it. He actually gets, he breaks down in tears. He is, it's, it's so, it gives him so much joy that he has been able to help people to actually mm -hmm. have a sense of, of self-identity, self-awareness. And his stuff is really, it's not that deep philosophy. He's got a rule, make your bed, clean up your room. You want to go out and change the world and save the world? You can't even keep your own house in order. Wow, that is so good. Clean up your That's eight by 10 space and then maybe somebody will take you seriously if, if you say mm -hmm. you're gonna go change the world. I know that we were talking about assumptions that people have about others. Do you find that if people make assumptions about other people that they see and label them, do you find that they prevent themselves from knowing who they are even more? Well, sure. Uh, if I take a, if I have a superficial view of others, mm -hmm. then I'm not really allowing myself to understand the world in which I live. And if I don't understand the world in which I live, I really don't understand myself. Oh. I mean, you have to understand your environment. You know, you've got all these science fiction movies and shows and books about people that get hooked up to, um, you know, fantasy worlds that they can live out in their heads. 
and it's so real, you know, and a character will say, well, you know, how do you know this is reality? <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe that's reality and this is fantasy. How do you know if it's so real, you can't tell the difference. And, and we're living in a world with our entertainment. I mean, these glasses you put on and you, you see a whole, a whole uh, universe that, that- Virtual reality. Yeah. I often ask my mom, I say, I'm so used to virtual reality these days. How do I know that this is not a form of virtual reality? They're like, I know it's, it may sound like not 100%, but I'm saying like, how do I know that I'm not wearing glasses and maybe I'm, maybe this is all a dream. Who knows? You really yeah. don't know. And the truth is that, that the great philosophers, I mean, Descartes questioned that. This was 200 years ago, I mm -hmm. think, maybe more. Um, you know, and, and his conclusion was, I think, therefore I am. Since I'm conscious, that proves my existence. But later philosophers came along and said, no, not necessarily. In virtual reality, you're conscious, conscious too. Yeah. Like I've been in, I've been bowling, I boxed in virtual reality and I'm totally aware of everything. And I feel like I'm so involved in it. Like, I, I feel like that's life, you know? And then you take off the glasses and you're like, this is not life. So that's why this life also, I mean, you found the truth. So you, you completely know it, but those people who are still searching for truth it could feel as if they're in a virtual reality. Yeah, and then the other problem is that the virtual reality is made to be so stimulating that yes. this world seems boring by comparison. It does. So why would I want to be here when I can be there? Exactly. Because this is real. Well, how do you know? And that's the question. How do you know? The truth is you don't. But chances I... are, <laughs> probability is that this is reality. And but then, it could be that it's not. It could be it that. Could be, but you know, you you if you're standing in a street corner and there's mm -hmm. traffic coming both ways, mm -hmm. you're going to wait for the light to change. Right. Or you're going to wait for a break in the traffic. You're not going to assume that those closed cars don't exist, because it would be more convenient if they didn't. You know, we play probabilities. Do I know 100% there's a god? No. Right. Nobody does. Christianity believes in a leap of faith. Judaism believes in a short step of faith after we've done the hard work of trying to figure it all out for ourselves. Mm. I've spent enough time researching, studying, listening, learning that I'm pretty much as confident as I could be. If you can find a way to bring me proof that there's no God, I'll listen to you. I'll listen to your proof. I, I kind of doubt it at this point because I've been involved in this for a very long time. And I yeah. don't think there's anything out there that I haven't ex been exposed to yet. But I'll listen to you. I'll hear what you have to say. You there's tell me definitely you something pulling the strings. You would think, you know, I mean, there are people who believe there's not, but I think they're the Once ones. Once I saw them. Horton Hears a Who, do you know what that is, Horton Hears a Who? Sure. So after I read the book, I was like, okay. Or like what we watched the video in Spanish class. And I realized, I said, okay, now I fully understand what it means that there's a God or some higher power, and then we're small because it was so such a correlation between the two. Do you agree? It's, I mean, it's a good, it's a good um, allegory. Yeah. There are things, I mean, you think about molecular structure, atomic structure. I mean, you, you're going to tell me that Matter is made up of particles that have almost no mass that are spinning around near the speed of light. You, you expect me to believe that? 
<laughs> but we all believe it. <laughs> Why? Not because it really doesn't matter. I really don't care. <laughs> it doesn't affect my life. But you go the other direction. Oh, there's a, there's a power that's controlling everything from the outside. All of a sudden that starts getting into questions of responsibility. Mm. What does that power want from me? Maybe I have to live according to rules that are not my own rules. Right. Once there's responsibility and obligation getting into the story, now all of a sudden we become very resistant to believing things that aren't what we want to believe. But electrons yeah. spinning around at speed of light and mass having no mass. <laughs> yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But um, do you believe in stereotypes and labels? I know that you talk about this a lot, but do you believe in them? Uh, I'm not sure what that means to believe. I mean, they exist. Do you believe in what you see? Let's say like there are labels. Do you believe some of those labels are true? Some of them certainly are. And, and the truth is that we need labels. We, there mm -hmm. so, there's so much information coming at us every second mm -hmm. that our mind filters out most of it. I mean, you're, you're, the things that are in your field of vision right now, mm -hmm. most of them have been filtered out and into, into your subconscious. It's the thing that is of interest to you at the moment. And if something appears out of the ordinary, right? if a blob appears on your screen, you're going to notice that. Right, for sure. Yeah. Um, like when my screen was gray, I'm like, that does not make any sense. Yeah. You know, I noticed I that a, right away. If I hold up a piece of paper with a single black dot on it, where's your, where's your attention going to go? Black, dot. black dot. Because that's what's unusual. That's right. what doesn't seem to belong there. So but is that a label? Well, no, but that's the principle oh. that makes labels necessary because mm. labeling makes us able to deal with information as it comes in so we don't get overloaded. Okay, you're, right. okay, you're male, you're female. Good, good, got that. You're black, <laughs> white, Asian, Latino, whatever. I, okay, got that. You're tall, short, fat, skinny. Uh, you're dressed a certain way. You know, as we subconsciously assimilate all that information Mm -hmm. And we make presumptions based on what we see, based on how that fits into our experience. And those are the whether we actually give them names or not. We're pigeonholing. We're putting things in boxes. We're labeling. Yeah. We're organizing because we have to, because life would just be way too complicated otherwise. But when it becomes a problem is when we won't let people out of those boxes, when we won't look beyond the label. Okay, now that I've got you labeled, that's where you're staying. Now we have a problem. Right, and do you believe oh. some labels and stereotypes are more harmful than others? And if you do, which ones would you say are more harmful? Oh, um, you know, I mean, think about what, where, why is there racism? Because there are people who think that people of color are inferior or people who think people who are white are oppressors, or people who are religious are radicals or fanatics. I mean, people who are, people who are Democrats want to destroy the country. People who are Republicans want to destroy the country. Right. I mean, why is there so much political tension? Because rather because than trying to understand the differences between the political philosophies, we slap labels on them mm. 
right, if I'm a Democrat, Republican is bad. If I'm a Republican, Democrat is bad. Okay, well, that, that made life easy. Yeah. Except I'm not going to solve any of my problems now. Things are just going to get worse. So intrinsically, if we recognize that, that subconscious or conscious labeling is a defense mechanism, mm-hmm. and we do it in order to process information as it comes in, but now we need to go a step beyond and allow people to present themselves to us as individuals, then we won't have problems. If we're not willing to take that next step, right. then we're in trouble. And we are. <laughs> so, so is that how you would say you challenge people's stereotypes? Because I knew that I know that you did say that you challenge people's stereotypes. Sure. I mean, being being a a, a, a rabbi, Orthodox rabbi, looking like one. Mm-hmm. Right? If I start talking about my experience of hitchhiking, or I start talking about pop culture, people are going to be a little bit off balance. Yeah, they're gonna be like, what is happening over here? Yeah. And you know, with with it does, I don't actually have to make people too uncomfortable to nudge them out of their comfort zones. All I have to do is challenge the stereotype a little bit. And what do you think the biggest Jewish stereotypes have been and are to this day? Uh well, the per the pervasive one is that the Jews are primarily concerned about money. Um, Why? Where does that stem from? Well, it it stems from a couple of places. It stems from a, um, an actual teaching of the sages, which says that the righteous are more concerned about their money than they are about themselves. Where does it say that? Uh, It says it in the Talmud. And and the, the, the understanding is that the righteous understand that everything is given to them as a gift from God, and they have a responsibility to use it. And if they don't use it responsibly, then basically they've stolen from God. So it's not really talking about acquisition of wealth. It's really talking about a sense of responsibility and how one uses one's wealth. Right. But it's easily distorted. And another place it comes from is historically that in, in, in Christian Europe, Jews were not allowed to hold a lot of jobs. And one of the only jobs that was allowed to them, was open to them, was money lending. Mm. And nobody liked the money lenders. <laughs> right. Because you only go to one when you need one, and you don't want to need one. So um, it created that sense of that negative stereotype, uh, Jews being always involved in money. But... You know, there, there are always going to be cultural stereotypes, always. Yeah. And, and when you were younger, did you feel that type of stereotype towards Jews also before you really, became religious? Not really. I, I, I felt very little of that. I know some people okay. did. I'm interested to hearing some stereotypes that you felt as a kid towards religious Jews, if you had any. If not, okay, then no. Well, oh, I, I, they, they just seemed like... Um, yeah, like fanatics. I mean, <laughs> why, why would anybody want, why would anybody want to live that way? Not because I had any experience yeah. with them. I don't think I ever met an Orthodox Jew. You've never met an Orthodox Jew until you became like until you went to Israel. Pretty much, yeah. And you said you grew up in California. Yeah. And you never met an Orthodox Jew. I don't think so. 
Uh, and they're living in St. Louis. It's such a like, crazy like yeah, world. Yeah. Like we went from a big city. St. Louis is so small. <sighs> yeah, we we actually we had one come to our high school to talk to us once. Um, it was really kind of embarrassing because they had a uh, yeah they wanted to have guest speakers come in and present us with different different cultures and so they had this evangelical um, pastor come in. I still remember the guy. He was, he was a football player. The oh, Reverend, wow. the Reverend Dan Muma, and he had a voice like this. I mean, it was like a stereotypic evangelical preacher. <laughs> Stories about playing football and uh, put my faith in Jesus. And oh my gosh! Charismatic guy, smiling, and and then they gave equal time to somebody from the from the, the local Orthodox uh, synagogue. And, you know, he was a, I don't even think he was an actual teacher. He just you know, coming and talk to high school students and. Very unimpressed. <laughs> he, what, you weren't excited to see him. What the, the first speech is better. You're saying, yeah, yeah. Was, you know, just the, the contrast was, you know, here's this, you know, really engaging guy with these great stories, and here's this kind of nebbish. <laughs> and then that's where the stereotype must have stemmed from. Yeah, well, I think it started before that, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now you are a speaker. You've done TED TEDx speak. You know, speech speeches. You're a keynote speaker. You're an author. You do so many things. Who? has been your inspiration? The, um, the person who really inspires me at the moment is the late uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Mm -hmm. um, he, he just passed away a couple of months ago from cancer, very tragic. And uh, you know, if your audience is not familiar with him, you should really look him up online. He, he, was, a, he was a princely person. He was, he was such an extraordinary personality. You could just feel the warmth and the authenticity and the sincerity pour out of him. You could talk to any audience about anything. He was good friends with atheists, with Muslims, with Catholics. Um, he, he just, his, his profound Jewish religious belief mm -hmm. never got in the way of his connecting with people from every conceivable walk of life and he was just so articulate about basic human values and universal uh, ideals. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just, I, I, I watch him often, uh, his, his videos and his talks on, on YouTube. There's a wealth of, of uh, uh, material that's from, that we have from him. Right? He wrote, I think, 18 books. Mm -hmm. And there's such a, a message of, of love and, and peace and and, and, and goodwill, uh, really, really inspirational person. So he's your inspiration. Now, I know you said the last question. The only question I have left is, what are you working on now? Which I think you already spoke about your book. If you want to say anything else about your book, you, can, you could say it now if you want. Unless yeah, you so, like the, um, so this so. book came out a couple of months ago. It's called Grappling with the Gray. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's meant to be a very entertaining, engaging read, offering the the reader an opportunity to look at and to read it in, in groups or pairs um, mm -hmm. to, to actually discuss, okay, now we have this, read, read this scenario, put the book aside, uh, and, um, and let's talk about how we would address this issue. So uh, on, my, on my website, yunusengolson.com, uh, you can find more information. And the other is, uh, sorry, I mentioned I started this new podcast called The Rabbi on the Shrink. Yeah. And uh, you can find information about that on the, on the, on the website. Also, uh, people can actually join the podcast live when we record. 
That's awesome. Uh, it's uh, Tuesdays at uh, 1230 Eastern. Um, there's, uh, you can register on site. And um, I've, got, uh, you know, I've got videos, articles, all kinds of ways of engaging and always interested to keep the conversation going. If people want to reach out to me through, through LinkedIn or through, through uh, my website. So if people want to directly contact you, you're saying the best way is to message you on LinkedIn? LinkedIn or the, my website has my uh, my email, which is my Other name, jonasengolson at gmail.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jonasen, for being here. I, I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been very nice. Thanks, Malia. Thank you. Well, you just listened to the 45th episode of Hebrew Hits. I'm your host, Malia. If you liked what you just heard, please hit that subscribe button right now on YouTube. Like this episode, comment on this episode, share this episode, and please go follow Hebrew Hits on Instagram and Facebook at Hebrew underscore hits. We are also available on all your favorite streaming apps. I'll see you back next week. Same time, same place. Bye.